The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Galatians 3, 1-9. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who were of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, be to Christ. Christ. Thanks, Esther. Good morning, everybody. So we are... Uh, we just passed the midway point uh, by showing up here in the Advent season, and uh, we are merging uh, our Galatians series with, with Advent, and uh, today we're going to take a look at uh, one of the most important messages, one of the more, most important statements uh, ever made in the history of the world uh, uh, by the Apostle Paul, but first... A little anecdote from my personal life. Recently, I found myself at home in a panic because I had lost my, uh, my iPhone. And if you're like me, you depend on your iPhone to stay connected, uh, to uh, remain aware of all the different messages that are coming to you from people that are important in your life. And uh, I had lost track of my iPhone. I had no idea where, where it was, and I started to panic, and I said, where's my iPhone? Where's my iPhone? Where's my iPhone? And the person at the moment uh, that I was talking to on my iPhone <laughs> said, well, aren't you talking on it right now to me? And I said, oh, yeah, here it is, right in front of my face. Problem solved. Paul says to Believers in Christ, in ancient Galatia, before your very eyes, right in front of your very eyes, right there in the palm of your hands, Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, that's a curious statement because Jesus, uh, in all likelihood, died somewhere in the early A.D. 30s, and Galatians was written... Uh, somewhere around A.D. 48, some 14, 15 years after Christ was crucified. And yet, yet Paul is talking about this vivid portrayal of the cross of Jesus Christ that they had been exposed to. And the only thing he could be talking about is preaching. Preaching uh, of the gospel and of the cross in particular that had at some point along the way gripped them, arrested their hearts, You know, at one point in time, they were a lot like the scholars 
in the 17th chapter of Acts who are described as people who are groping for God, who are, who are looking for a God that, that they don't understand and that they don't know and, and are meeting together on a daily basis, sort of theorizing, is there a God? And if so, what is that God like? What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of everything? Why are we here? Everything's so uncertain, and, and, and yet to, to <coughs> at least try to settle their unsettledness a bit, they, they got together and they erected uh, a, an altar to what they called an unknown God. So that's where the people of Galatia, who were more from a Gentile heritage, were coming from, until some heralds, some messengers, some historians came to them with what Scripture calls the good news of the gospel, of this gentle invasion of the Son of God into the world who comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And all of a sudden, these people from Galatia had right there in their hands an anchor, an anchor that was historically grounded, internally coherent, intellectually stimulating, emotionally satisfying, personally, socially, and vocationally transformative, morally beautiful, convincingly true, and all the time hopeful. And undergirding all of it was this message of the cross that had been clearly and vividly preached to them. And there was this one single word that Jesus used on the cross. We translate it into three words, but in the original Greek, it's one word, tetelestai. It's an accounting word, meaning it is finished. It is finished. The work is done. It's paid in full. It is finished. And this is the whole message of Galatians that, that Paul is trying to pull people back to. They had somehow departed from it. That in order to have right standing with God, in order to enjoy all the benefits and privileges and rest of, of knowing that you are an adopted child of God, you need two things, Jesus Christ and nothing else. Jesus Christ and nothing else. <coughs> but then in to this Galatian church comes a group of people, self-appointed teachers called the Circumcision Party. And instead of carrying with them the message of, of Jesus plus nothing else, instead of reinforcing that message, they brought in a message that went something like this, Jesus plus something else. Added behaviors, added habits, added effort, added pressure is how you need to live out your life in Christ. Yes, you have to believe in Jesus, but you need more than that as well. And to this, Paul says these words, are you so foolish? Having begun by, uh, by the Spirit, and you know, the Bible says where, where the Spirit of God is, there's freedom. So having begun with freedom, are you now being perfected or trying to complete yourself through the flesh or through work? Paul brings them back to something that's been true all the way since the beginning, Abraham believed God, and that was credited to him as righteousness. He was counted right. 
in the eyes of God because he believed. Christianity is not a religion of performance, in other words, and it never has been. It's a religion of promise. And so Paul is bringing us back to that. And basically today, I want to unpack what Paul's saying in this text under under three headings, just call it three iPhones, if you will, three, three messaging devices, to use a modern metaphor, that are right there in our hands at all times. In Christ there is freedom, in Christ the pressure is off, and in Christ we are never, never vulnerable to worst case scenarios. Okay, so first, in Christ there is freedom. Or another word for that is completion. You know, when, when a job is completed, right, you, you, you're able to rest. You're free, right? You know, I try to finish my sermon preparation on Tuesday so I can feel a sense of freedom for the rest of the week. When a job is done, you feel more free. In verse 3, when he talks about being perfected, it means to be made complete. And, and it's, interestingly, a passive word. Being perfected is something done to you, not by you. He says Abraham believed God. He was counted righteous on the basis of simply believing what God had said. Now, what is it that we are called upon by God to believe What does Abraham's faith look like for us? Well, in the same way that Abraham looked ahead in time to the Savior that was promised, we look back in time to the Savior who has come and who will come again. So what are we meant to believe? There are a couple of categories that Scripture gives us. One is the historical truths, and we find these historical truths in uh, uh, certainly the scriptures, but also in summary documents like the Apostles' Creed, which we, we, we recite here once a month at Christ's Prez before communion. And one central section about the cross of Christ and everything around it uh, goes this way. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. You believe these historic claims? That's part of having faith. Trusting in the historical record that's been passed on to us by eyewitnesses through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But then the other thing to believe in, <clears throat> because even the Bible tells us even demons, even, even the devil believes the historic facts, the historical facts, the historical truths. There are substitutionary benefits that we're also meant to believe in. One, that Jesus died the death of a sinner, even though he never had sin. He died the death of a sinner That's where the cross comes in, so that we would be able to enjoy the reality of knowing that we will never be put on probation and we will never be punished by God. He will never seek retribution toward us for any of the wrongs in our lives because Jesus Christ has already absorbed it. And you know why? Because of what 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 says. It says that if we confess our sins 
He is faithful and, doesn't say he's faithful and merciful. It doesn't say he's faithful and forgiving. It doesn't say he's faithful and kind. It says he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God forgiving us on the basis of faith is a matter of justice. It's a matter of doing what's right, doing what he's obligated to. And why is it justice for God to forgive us? Because God has already punished us in Christ on the cross, which was vividly displayed to us through preaching, right? And, and for God to, to, to inflict a double punishment for a single crime would be unjust, to make two people pay for pay the penalty for the faults and rebellions of one would be unjust. It would be over punishment. And so it's not just that God will not retaliate against us for the ways that we've wronged him. It's that he cannot. Because to do so would be to violate his own nature, which is perfectly just. Okay, so are you with me? No double payments. The other thing Jesus did was he lived a blameless life on our behalf. He gets the blame for all the wrong in us. We get the credit for all the right that was and is in him. That means, you know, we, we, we covered this in a full sermon a couple weeks ago. As far as God is concerned, you can do no wrong in his eyes, even on your worst day. Even in your ugliest moment, you can do no wrong in his eyes. Why? Because God sees you through a filter. God sees you through the finished and perfect work of Christ. And that's how he evaluates you. That's how he scrutinizes you through the perfect work of Jesus Christ. We can do no wrong in his eyes. But the third thing is our status. That's another thing we have to believe and receive as Abraham believed God. We, through Jesus Christ, <coughs> are daughters and sons of God. That's our status. And so Paul uses words to describe us like blessed and your heirs or, or, or inheritors of the promises of the things that Jesus has earned on your behalf as the firstborn of all creation. And so, so what Paul's getting at is this, that the biggest problem for Christians is no longer their sin problem. Your biggest problem isn't your sin problem. Your biggest problem is your memory problem. That's what he's saying. Because your sins cannot be held against you. So that's not your problem anymore. But your memory can mess things up for you. When you know you're favored, you're going to lose inhibition because you feel no more pressure. When you know you're favored, you, you certainly aren't going to start adding pressure to yourself, which is what they're doing. So, a lot of you know who Al Andrews is. Al is the director of a nonprofit called Porter's Call, locally here in Nashville. It's, it's sort of a counseling service provided for people in the music industry and all the pressures and loneliness that comes with life on the stage. And Al uh, uh, gave a, a talk to some Christ Prez folks not long ago and one of the stories that he told was about a child, a young boy in his family. I can't remember if it was a child or a grandchild. 
but he was talking about one day in the bathtub where the boy in his family, probably, you know, five, six years old, just on a whim decides to grab the shampoo in one hand and the conditioner in the other, stand up naked in the tub, raise his hands up in the air in triumph and say, yes, yes. Reminded me of my own nephews in South Georgia. In their younger years, when they were sent outside to play, they would routinely strip naked and then go to the neighbor's house, knock on the door, and ask for a snack. (laughs) No clothes. No inhibition. Echoes of Eden. Naked, with no shame, known and assuming love, exposed and assuming non-rejection. Are you embarrassed by me standing naked at your door? I guess that's your problem. It was sort of their, their posture. No inhibitions, because they assumed love. You know, Al Andrews went on to say, At some point along the way, our eyes are open to our nakedness. And then these hands, these triumphant hands, start to come down as we begin adulting. And they start to cover and compensate and fear. And once you become a Christian, once you gain the faith of Abraham... The rest of your life is about learning to get your hands back up in the air again. To lay claim to the truth. You know, I used to not like country music until I started listening to country music. I think Thomas Rhett nails it in one of his latest songs called Remember You Young. Here's the closing lyric of that song. I hope when we get to heaven, he, referring to God, looks at us all like we're kids, shameless and painless and perfect and ageless, forgives all the wrongs that we did. And no matter how much time goes by, I hope we never have to grow up. And he will say, for worse or for better, from now till forever, I will always remember you young. Jesus says if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, you, you have to do it with the, with the mind of a child, with the understanding of a child, that you're remembered young by the Father. You're remembered innocent by the Father because you're clothed and protected and shielded by the innocence of Christ himself. In Christ there is freedom, and in Christ the pressure is off. In the first verse, Paul gets hot under the collar. He says, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It's just another way of saying, have you lost your minds? Have you lost your minds? You've forgotten. It's as if he's saying, you've forgotten that Christianity is not just another religion. It's just not, it's not just another take on God. Christianity 
isn't just different than other religions, it's contrary to other religions because the well done under Jesus Christ comes at the start line, not the finish line. The judgment day is in the past, not the future. On this cross that was so vividly portrayed before your eyes. The dying words of Jesus were, it is finished. The dying words of Buddha were, strive without ceasing. In one statement, you've got the Christian religion. The pressure's off. In another statement, you've got every other religion. The pressure's on. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus gives his most famous, tells his most famous, widely known story or parable. You've got two sons. They're both messed up in their own way. One's overly rigid. One of them is overly um, hedonistic. And the hedonistic son is the one who insults the father by asking for his inheritance before his father had passed, which is just another way of saying, I wish you were dead so I could have all your stuff, or at least the part that, that I'm entitled to. Can I have it now? And go live my life the way I want to live it and get out from under your grubby hands. And so the father, heartbroken, gives the son what he asks for. The son goes out, <laughs> makes a train wreck of his life by spending the whole inheritance on prostitutes and parties and hedonistic living. And his life is a wreck and it's his own doing. And, and he comes to his senses, it says, and he realizes, look, my only hope moving forward is the father that I grew up with. He's the only one in this world who will accept me. And so he goes home, though, thinking that, that he's going to go home, not on the terms of a son, but on the terms of a slave. And he prepares this speech. And the speech is, Lord, uh, Father, I'm no longer worthy, as if he ever was, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, so please take me back as a slave. You know, meet my basic needs, and I will serve you, and I will labor for you, and the father looks at him and sort of stops him mid-speech and says, and this is paraphrased, but, but basically says to him and demonstrates to him, wait a minute, you've got me all wrong. You've got me all wrong. I'm not the least bit disappointed in you. I'm just completely happy that you're back home. All I have all that remains is still yours. We have to celebrate through a party for the whole village. Do you believe that God's not disappointed with you? That's your pride talking. Or, if, if, or do you believe that God is disappointed with you? That's your pride talking. That's your pride saying that my failures are bigger than your grace. My unkindness to you is bigger than your kindness to me. The assumption as a Christian, as one who trusts and believes in Jesus Christ, the assumption that God is disappointed with you is pride. You think that somehow what you do can outdo what Christ has done. 
We live in an age where you can lose your career at age 45 because of something you did as a, some dumb thing you did as a 16-year-old. Like we live, that's the world we live in now. Somebody can find out what you did when you were 16 and ruin your life at age 45. But God's different than this. God will never reduce us to the dumbest thing that we ever did. He will never reduce us to or define us by our worst moments or even our worst seasons. How sure can we be of this? Just look at the examples. Look at exhibit A. Who is his chosen example here? Abraham. Here's part of Abraham's story. He betrayed his wife, Sarah, twice. Handed her over to predators in order to protect himself. Twice. When God comes to Abraham and, and, and verbally promises to him, can you imagine if God appeared to you? Verbally makes a promise to him, look, you're gonna have, I know it doesn't look this way, I know the optics don't support this, you're old, Sarah is infertile, it's always, you know, she's always been infertile, but you're gonna have a son, not only are you gonna have a son, you're gonna have nations come from you. And, and it says that, that mockingly, both Sarah and Abraham laughed. And God says, why are you laughing, Abraham? And Abraham says, I didn't laugh. So he lies to, to God, and, 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 and God says, no, no, you did laugh. You did. Isaac is born. The name Isaac, incidentally, means he laughs, laughter. And Isaac does the same thing to his wife, Rebecca, as Abraham did to Sarah, hands her over to predators to protect himself. Isaac, it, he's not only a bad husband, he's also a really bad father. One of his sons, he gave the name Jacob. Do you know what Jacob means? It means deceiver. Who would name their child like that? I mean, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. You, you give the, a, a curse name to your kid before you even give him a chance, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. As it became for Jacob, he became a master deceiver. I'm just becoming what my father named me, Jacob could say. He lies, he steals his brother's birthright. <clears throat> Where is the place in history that God gives to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? We get the answer in Hebrews chapter 11. All three of them are honored as forefathers of everyone who has true faith. How crazy is that? They're honored. Where do we find this? Hebrews chapter 11. Each one of them is introduced, not, not in this way, by his good works. Abraham, da, 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 da. By his valiant efforts, Isaac, da, 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 da. By his impeccable virtue, Jacob, da, 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 da. None of them were introduced this way. Here's how they were introduced. By faith, Abraham, da, 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 da. By faith, Isaac, da, 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 da. By faith, Jacob, da, 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 da. Do you see the point? You see what all of Scripture's getting at? We all carry leg legitimate negative verdicts with us about ourselves, like, like these three did. We've all done things that we're ashamed of, that we're embarrassed of, that we won't even speak of. We've thought things we won't even speak of. Yet never for a moment, never for a moment, if the gospel is true, 
Are we injured or are we threatened in our standing with God? Never. Only pride tells us otherwise. During Advent, we're reminded from Isaiah chapter 9 every year that Jesus would come as wonderful counselor. What does this wonderful counselor say to us? On this third Sunday of Advent, which is the the Sunday in Advent where the emphasis is joy. The wonderful counselor says, yeah, you, you are a train wreck, Abraham. You are a train wreck, Isaac, Jacob. You are a train wreck, Elizabeth. You are a train wreck, Campbell. You are a train wreck, man. You're a train wreck. All those verdicts are true, at least emotionally. We are never enough. You know, Amy Tan wrote a book called The Joy Luck Club, became a movie, uh, climbed to number three on the New York Times best-selling list, seller's list, and she calls her mom when the book hits number three and says, Mom, I am number three. My book, Joy Luck Club, is number three on the New York Times list today. And, and her mother's first answer was, well, who got number two and number one? So we have these negative verdicts. We have these voices on the outside saying you're never enough. You're never enough. But it's worse because it gets worse because those voices also come at us from the inside. I am never enough. Even if I have no critics on the outside, I'm never enough in my own eyes. Do you know that Michelangelo, when he was painting the Sistine Chapel, felt like he was wasting his life? Did you know that Vincent van Gogh, when he finished Starry Starry Night, looked at the painting and was ashamed? Did you know that Woody Allen has never seen a Woody Allen movie? because Woody Allen is terrified of the flaws that he would see in his own work. Did you know that Madonna has gone on record as saying that everything in life that she does, she does to avoid appearing mediocre? Last scene of Schindler's List, do you remember? This is after Oscar Schindler has valiantly rescued 1,200 Jewish human beings from the threat of Hitler and the Nazi regime, 1,200. And his, his closing line in the movie, I didn't do enough. I should have saved one more. And here's the thing, the more awake we are, the more awake we are to reality, there is a rightness to being more demanding on ourselves, not less. And I know it sounds like I'm contradicting myself right now. There is legitimacy to more perfectionism the more awake we are because we're created in the image of a perfect God. Humanity was put in the Garden of Eden in perfection. Redeemed humanity in Christ is headed toward perfection in glory. That's what we're made for. That's what we're made for. To err is actually not human. It's an aberration of what humanity is supposed to be. And so there's this inner voice that says, I should always be better. Even at my best, I should always be better. The problem is not that internal struggle. The problem is that we are no longer capable of fulfilling it. That's the problem, and only the gospel answers it. No, you aren't 
enough, but Christ is. Christ is. And it's only your pride that will keep you from putting your hands up in the air and saying, yes, as a naked man and a naked woman with no clothes, O emperor. Only pride. That's the only thing getting in the way of re-entry into liberation and freedom. The last words of Jesus' life were, it is finished. Did you know that these last words of Christ on this cross vividly portray to us through preaching have also become the first words of every life of every believer. The work's finished. Jesus worked toward completion. We work out of the completion that he's accomplished on our behalf. Which means, even though on the one hand, the, the, the reason, here, why obey Jesus Christ? Because you don't have to. There's no greater reason in the universe to obey and follow and surrender your whole life to Jesus Christ than the very fact that you don't have to in order to establish yourself with God. And if that doesn't compel you to obey and follow, you, you haven't understood. You haven't understood. Finally, in Christ we're never vulnerable to our worst case scenarios. Here's the reality on your worst day. You are a daughter or a son of God. And that's as bad as it can get. You'll be, you will be resurrected one day to perfection. And that's as bad as it can get. You will enjoy everlasting life. And that's as bad as it's going to get. That's as bad as it's going to be for anyone who trusts in Christ with the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's as bad as it's going to be for anyone 150 years from now. And 150 billion years from now. Christianity is not a religion of performance. It's a religion of promise. He who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete that work until the day of Christ Jesus. This means two wonderful things as we prepare for the table. Number one, <clears throat> nothing that is done to us can undo this. Remember, Sarah was infertile. Abraham waited until he was 100 years old to see the promise of God fulfilled. The optics are sometimes really rough. There are a lot of you that are going through some really, really rough things. And, and there are things that you're going to possibly some of you endure until your very last day in this life before the life to come. Some of us have fears. Some of us, there is no Isaac that's born. There is no boy named laughter in our old age. I don't know what your worst fear is, but mine is that I will end up in a memory unit someday. Um, you know, insomnia is an ongoing struggle that's actually not good at all for the brain. I've been fighting insomnia for almost a decade now. 
Uh, and it's in the genes. My, my mother is in later stages of Alzheimer's right now. And, um, and I'll be honest, I'm, I'm not necessarily fearful of being immobilized. Uh, I'm not fearful of um, forgetting a lot of things. There are actually a lot of things that I would love to forget. What I'm afraid of is that I'll forget Jesus. Because my life, my life has found its meaning, its center, its core, its, its everything around the person and work of Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm, I'm worried, I'm concerned, I'm afraid that maybe one day I will forget Jesus. And then in comes Isaiah, the same one who talks about the wonderful counselor. And he asks the question, can a mother forget the baby at her, at her breast? And I know from firsthand personal experience that the answer to that question is yes because my mother has forgotten me. But it goes on. She may forget you. But the Lord will never forget you. If I forget him, he won't forget me. It is all about his faithfulness. The worst case scenario is covered. Not because I will remember him, but because he will remember me. Nothing done to you can undo this. Nothing done by us can undo it either. Again, God will never reduce us to our worst moments, our worst decisions, our worst seasons. Now, you've, you've probably read in the news in the last couple of months about Jared Wilson. He was a young uh, pastor on the West Coast uh, who uh, took his own life and... Um, what you may not know is that Jared was here in Nashville before he went to California. And uh, Jared was a friend of mine. And only a few weeks prior, Jared and I had dreamed together about the, the, the probability of them relocating back to Nashville to begin a nonprofit, particularly for young people who struggle with mental health problems. Jared and I both share a story of, of battling depression. And Jared took his own life. And well-meaning people, well-meaning, poorly informed people, it was told recently in an, an article, I think in USA Today, um, have come to, up to his wife and said, we want you to know that we're praying for you and we're praying for your boys, but we're scared for Jared. And the assumption is that if you die with a sin that you haven't confessed, can God forgive you? To which Galatians would say, who has bewitched you to think that way? Oh, foolish, foolish people. I've got to confess to you that, that when, when I heard Jared took his life, I was simultaneously sad and angry. I was angry because he could have reached out to me and told me that it had gotten that bad, and he didn't. I was angry because he made a decision to leave behind a widow who adored him and two young boys who thought he hung the moon. I was angry because we shared a story. And we also shared of depression, and we shared a hope together. 
And he decided to take himself out of that story without consulting me as his friend. So I had some struggles. And then it all came together when Greg Laurie, who's the pastor out in California that had called him to come out and serve on their staff, wrote this in that, that essay or that you know, article. To, to the voices that are saying to the wife or to themselves, well, I'm praying for the family, but I'm scared for him. Greg Laurie says this. One dark moment in a Christian's life cannot undo what Christ did for us on the cross. When you stand before God, you will not be judged by the last thing you did before you died, but by the last thing Jesus did before he died. It is finished. The message is not strive without ceasing. Better make sure everything's cleaned up before you die. That's not the gospel. That's bewitched religion. The gospel is, it is finished. And it was finished long before the worst decision you ever made. In Christ there is freedom. In Christ the pressure is off. In Christ we are never vulnerable in the ultimate sense to the worst case scenario. When you forget that it's right there in your hand and when you start to panic, remind yourself and remind each other, it's right here. It's right here. I want to invite you uh, to stand with me. I want to invite the servers to make your way to your tables as you prepare to serve the Lord's Supper to God's people. I want to invite the kids to come back in and join their parents as we all look at the screen together and pray in unison a prayer for the third Sunday of Advent. Stir up your power, O Lord, and with great might come among us. And because we are sorely hindered by our sins, let your bountiful grace and mercy speedily help and deliver us through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory now and forever. Amen.